Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What are you most afraid God might tell you to do? Be a missionary? Give away all your money? What if all you were called to do is grill some burgers and share a beverage with your neighbor? Teaching team member Bob Cargo continues the series, Neighboring Where You Live, with this message entitled, A Meal With Your Neighbor, which covers Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, and Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 33. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're starting a series uh, last week, this week is week number two, called Neighboring Where You Live. And as Jeff said last week, this is really an extension of a series we did almost two years ago. And that was called Love Where You Live. And in that series, we, it was our attempt to call you, to challenge you, not to ignore the city that you live in. Whether it's Johns Creek or Roswell or Peachtree Corners or wherever it is you live, don't ignore that city. God's call to you is to care for your city, to care about your city, to love your city, to try to be a blessing to your city. And not just to the individuals and families in your city directly, but also indirectly. That is to try to love the channels of influence in your city. Why? Because those channels of influence either, being, either end up being a blessing or a curse to individuals and families. It's all about people, but it's holistic. That's what we're, part of what we're trying to say. So God is calling you to try to bless the business community of your city, the arts community of your city, to try to be a blessing in the realm of government and law, education, healthcare, whatever your calling in life is. So in that series, just sort of to hit the highlights of two years ago again, I always love it when I can re-preach a series from two years ago in about 15 or 20 seconds. What we tried to say was this, God is calling us to build a community of grace and love and hospitality for our city. God is calling us to share Christ in word and deed in our cities. God is calling us to seek justice and mercy, to pursue racial reconciliation in the city where we live. God is calling us to pray for the shalom, the peace, the blessing, the flourishing of the cities where we live. So what city do you live in? God is calling you to love your city, holistically and individually. Now, in the series this time, we're trying to get a narrow focus. We're trying to build it, get it down to one of the most important building blocks about how you can start to love your city. And here's the idea. It's very simple and it's very logical. If God has called me to love the world, if God has called me to care about my city, then shouldn't I love and care about the people who live across the street? Shouldn't I love and care about the people who live next door? Shouldn't I love and care about the people who live down the street and throughout my subdivision? It really is a logical thing. When, when Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself, He meant more than your literal neighbor, but he certainly did not mean less than your literal neighbor, right? Now, let me confess again, as Jeff did last week, I'm absolutely terrible, terrible at doing what I'm preaching to you about today. Terrible at it. I really am. I stay so busy, so busy with my job and church planting, so busy with my family, so busy with all these important things out there somewhere else. And on top of that, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an INTJ. Now, that means I'm an introvert. It doesn't mean that I don't like people. It doesn't mean that I don't like hanging out with people. But it does mean I get recharged by my time being alone. 
It means I've got only so many words every day to give or receive, and then I'm out of word. I'm out of wording, okay? Out of wording at that point. And my wife would be the first to tell you about 5 or 5.30 every day, I'm out of wording. I've used them all that day. My quota has been done. I've caught my limit. And so what that means for me too often is what suffers is that I don't see, I don't pay attention to, I don't get connected to people who live within an eight iron or a three wood from my house. That's the result. That's what happens. Our lead pastor for many years has quoted a a pastor by the name of Chuck Swindoll. And too often what Chuck Swindoll said characterizes my life. This is what he said. Busyness rapes relationships. It substitutes shallow frenzy for deep relationships. It promises satisfying dreams but delivers hollow nightmares. It feeds the ego but starves the inner man. It fills the calendar but fractures the family. It cultivates a program but plows under priorities. Our nation has become a nation known for relational isolation. And that was even before these handheld devices we carry around became the primary focus of our attention. Over 15 years ago, the famed uh, pollster George Gallup said this, we are physically detached from, one, from each other in America. We change places of residence frequently. Our survey revealed that seven in 10 do not know their neighbors. As many as one third of Americans admit to frequent periods of loneliness, which is a key factor in the high suicide rate among the elderly. And about that same time, Dr. Lyle Schaller, an expert about church ministry in America and around the world said this, the biggest challenge for the church at the opening of the 21st century is to develop a solution to the discontinuity and fragmentation of the American lifestyle. Wow. Now, what we want to say today is this, that a solution to this, or at least an important part of the solution, is something very simple, and it is for you to do something that you already love to do. Aren't you you excited when a solution to a problem is something you love to do already? Here's the solution. Eat food. Eat food you like. Wash down the food with something to drink that you like. And then do that with your neighbors. It's not that hard, is it? It's not that hard. Have you seen the Nutrisystem commercials? Nutrisystem, where they they send you the food, and if you eat only the food they send you, they say you're going to lose weight. And one of the best marketing lines in the history of marketing is the guy who sounds like he's got a New Jersey accent to me, and he says, you eat the food, you lose the weight. It's not that hard. What I'm going to say to you is, you eat the food, you drink the drink, you do it with your neighbor. It's not that hard. Now, the reality is, logically, it's not that hard, but it sure feels hard, doesn't it? It does. So let's talk about this topic. We want to talk about the topic generally, then we want to look at the passage, the scripture that we're going to focus on today. I want to start with a, a statement. I hope it rattles around in your brain and makes a difference. Sharing meals together is more central to the Christian faith than maybe you have ever considered or ever experienced. Let me say that again. Sharing meals together is more central to the Christian faith than perhaps you have ever considered or perhaps than you have ever experienced. There's a guy who's written a a book. I think the title is terrific. It's called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. I like that. Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. And this scholar, this New Testament scholar, has said that in, gospel, in Luke's gospel, there's not even a chapter where you will not find Jesus even either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. 
He said, you really can't understand the ministry of Jesus without understanding what happened at mealtimes. Luke 19.10 tells us why Jesus comes. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But Matthew 11.19, one of our passages today, tells us how Jesus connected to the lost. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Do you get that? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. How did he seek them? He ate with them. He drank with them. He connected over meals. That characterized the ministry of Jesus. Now, this whole thing of the importance of meals and the importance of hospitality didn't end with Jesus. It's a whole theme in the New Testament about how the followers of Jesus are to live their lives. Consider these examples. You'll see them on the screen. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans, he said, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The Apostle Peter said, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And in Matthew 25, Jesus says, the way people can receive my followers is to feed them when they're hungry and to give them water to drink when they are thirsty. The Rive Hebrews says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And in the book of Acts, we see this example right off the bat about the followers of Jesus. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. One expert in this topic has called it radically ordinary hospitality. I like that. Radically ordinary hospitality. Well, the time we have left, we want to look at the passage to see an example of a follower of Jesus that did this right after he was converted. We want to talk more about our lives. Why don't we do this, and how can we start to do it? Then lastly, we want to connect all of that with the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the passage today. The primary passage you'll see in an insert in your bulletin. If you have a Bible open to Luke 5, you'll also see it on the screen. And here's a story from where else? From the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 27 of Luke 5. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, let me just say here parenthetically, by leaving everything, it doesn't mean that he left all of his wealth and all of his possessions. That will become true when we see the rest of the story. But what it does mean is he left his job, and that was huge. When the followers of Jesus who were fishermen left their fishing business, they were self-employed. They were entrepreneurs. If this Jesus thing didn't work, work out, they could go back to fishing. But when Levi stood up and left his tax-collecting booth, he was leaving his job for good. He was leaving a lot of income for good. There was no going back. Verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained, or literally they were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. They continued the pattern. Let's ask a few questions quickly to understand this passage. First of all, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the primary religious leaders of Jesus' day. Think about all that you can imagine that could be negative about religion. Rules-based, oppressive, unloving, 
making more people feel like they are outcasts than anything else. That was the religion of the Pharisees. And the teachers of the law were their buddies that interpreted God's word according to the way the Pharisees thought it should be. Who was Levi? Well, later in the scriptures, he's also called Matthew. The most important thing to know about him here is he's a tax collector. He was probably receiving customs here in Capernaum. This is where this story takes place. At the edge of the nation of Israel. So he was probably taking customs fees as people came in and out and crossed the border of the country. The biggest thing to know about Levi was this. He was a collaborator with Rome. Rome had conquered Israel. And the Israelites hated Rome. To put this in context, this would be like America being conquered by the Russians... And Levi being an American who was collaborating and cooperating with the Russians. It would be like Levi being a member of the Russian mafia. And he is getting rich out of the oppression of his own people. That's what it was like. So Levi was not down and out. But Levi was still still a social and religious outcast. He was up and out. He had been excommunicated from the synagogue. He was disqualified from being in court as either a judge or even a witness. He was uh, absolutely hated, absolutely disgraced, and he was considered immoral and far from God because of what he was doing in cooperation with Rome. And so, for Jesus, who was claiming to be this religious leader who was close to God, for him to call somebody like Levi to be his follower... For him to go to a meal and a banquet at Levi's house, that was absolutely unthinkable. One New Testament scholar by the name of Scott Barchi has said this, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed to the table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. It says here in verse 30 that the religious leaders were complaining to Jesus' disciples about what they were doing. Well, this Greek word, were complaining, is the same Greek word that was used in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The same Greek word used of Israel, complaining against God and murmuring against God and against Moses out in the wilderness. So the Pharisees right here are joining forces with those who oppose the gracious plan of God. Those who were complaining about the merciful ways of God. The last question to ask about the passage is this. What was at the heart of the difference between the way Jesus saw God and the Pharisees saw God? What was at the heart of the difference between the way Jesus saw how to be right with God versus how the Pharisees saw to be right with God? And it can be summarized this way. The Pharisees saw it as, a, as an issue of separation. Jesus saw it as an issue of association. For the Pharisees, to be holy meant that you would be separate from all unclean foods and all unclean peoples. Righteousness is attained by keeping as far away as I can from anyone or anything that might be questionable. But for Jesus, holiness and mercy are carried out through association. Holiness is this. I admit my need, I admit my soul sickness, and I associate myself with the doctor who can heal me. For Jesus, repentance was not works righteousness. 
For Jesus, repentance was giving up my home remedies for righteousness and going to Dr. Jesus for him to heal me. And then mercy is taking other sin-sick people with me to see Dr. Jesus. I don't go away from them because they're sick. I don't avoid them because they're sick. I recognize that I am just like them, and I want them to meet the doctor that I have found. It is association. It is association. These Pharisees had so twisted and misunderstood and turned upside down Judaism that a good religious person in their day had to stay far away from the down and out like the lepers and far away from the up and out like Levi. But for Jesus, the kingdom of God is a level playing field. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the salvation that comes is the same for all. For God so loved the world. And for the Jews that heard that verse, what it sounded like to them was, for God so loved non-Jewish people. For God so loved irreligious people. For God so loved people different than me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. I like the way Dr. Frank Stagg has talked about this passage. He has said, here Jesus rejected the superficial grounds upon which the Pharisees distinguished between the righteous and the sinners. They base it on such things as descent from Abraham, circumcision, purification rites, food laws, and Sabbath observance. Jesus based the distinction upon what one, through repentance and faith, had let God do in the innermost self. Jesus looked upon the Pharisee and the publican, both as sinners, both under the same judgment and requiring the same salvation. It was for this principle that he set about to create a new Israel, a new people of God, without regard for nationality, race, or any other distinctions of the world. Now, don't miss the point. When Levi wanted to show love to his friends, he did it over a meal. He did it over a meal. Now, why would meals like this, meals that feel like banquets, meals that are full of celebration and love and open hearts and open lives, why would meals like that be so central to our faith? One of the books we've recommended for you is by Tim Chester. It's called A Meal with Jesus. I couldn't say it better than Tim has said it. Here's what he said. The parties of Jesus, and that means not only the parties thrown by Jesus, but parties about Jesus that are thrown by Jesus' followers. The parties of Jesus are celebrations. The Pharisees here are mourning over the absence of God in his kingdom. But in Jesus, God has come to his people, and the kingdom is dawning. So fasting gives way to feasting. Their meals are eaten with joy. They must be. Compare the old way with the new. The new way is gracious rather than religious, inclusive rather than exclusive, welcoming rather than unwelcoming. It is characterized by feasting rather than fasting, rejoicing rather than grumbling. It recognizes its need and finds hope in the Savior rather than feeling self-righteous and therefore rejecting the Savior. There are only two parts of our uh, points to remember today. The first one I've already been talking about for a while, so don't freak out that I'm only giving it to you now like we're about to start it. The first point is this. At the heart of God's kingdom are relationships, authentic, genuine, and compassionate. And nothing fuels relationships like meals together. Would you stare at that for a moment? Would you let it sink in? At the heart of God's kingdom are relationships, authentic, 
genuine and compassionate, and nothing fuels relationships like meals together. Now the question is this, my friends, if that's true, then the question is why don't we do it? (laughs) Why don't we do it? Why do I struggle with it? Why does Jeff struggle with it? Why do so many of us struggle with it? I think there are three reasons, three things to get in our way, three enemies of doing what God has called us to do. The first one is this, that we feel like we're too busy. Right? We feel like we're too busy. That's my greatest enemy. I get busy doing other stuff, so busy filling up my calendar with one thing after another. All of a sudden I realize I don't have any margin for my neighbors. Now, despite that, recently we did have some of our neighbors over. And just a couple of weeks ago, and I want to tell you something, it was terrific. It was the most delightful evening we could remember in years. And we looked at ourselves and said, after everybody else left, Morgan and I looked at each other and said, we've got to stop hanging out with church people so much and hang out more with our neighbors. That was awesome. That was terrific. The truth of the matter is, we make time for what we think is important, right? So we might think, well, I'm too busy. But I bet we could find margin if we really tried to. Secondly, the second thing that gets in our way is those people seem too different. They seem too different. Now, for Jesus, uh, he went to the home of somebody who, like I said, is sort of like a member of the Russian mafia. So for Jesus, that wasn't too different. And for us, rarely are the differences religious and moral. If they are religious and moral, then those, those walls need to be torn down too. But normally, what keeps us from getting together with neighbors, if it's because of a difference, is, is superficial stuff like this. Oh, they're older than us, or they're younger than us. We won't have much in common. Or our kids go to different schools, or our kids aren't the same ages, or uh, our hobbies are different, you know? We like sports, and they like music and movies and stuff like that. Or maybe we think, well, they're from a different part of the country, or they're from a different part of the world, or they're from a different part of the state of Georgia. We, we overestimate little things. We, we, things like, oh, they pull for Georgia Tech. We can never be friends with them. It's an ACC family. I mean, we got nothing in common. Superficial kinds of things. And often, those things don't have to stand in the way at all. What we need is a, is a heavy dose of understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. If our neighbors are image bearers and if we are image bearers, we have more than we need, more than enough of what we need to have a great meal together and have a great friendship together too. Oh, we're too busy. Not true. We don't have anything in common. Not true. I think the last one, and I go into this one with fear and trepidation, the last reason is that we confuse hospitality with entertainment. We confuse hospitality with entertainment. Now, ladies, let me just say, as a man, I get it that I don't get it, okay? I get it that I don't get it. For men, hospitality looks like opening a bag of chips, pointing a guy to the fridge where he can find the beer or the soft drinks and saying, pull up a chair. That's hospitality. And I understand for women, that's not hospitality. So I'm not pretending that I understand your world or or the pressure that you feel when you have people into your home. But I know there are women throughout the church that have thought about this lived it out, written about it, and they can be of help to you. I really highly recommend a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. It is the best book I have read in years. It is as refreshing as it is challenging. And here's the way I would summarize what she says in her book about radically ordinary hospitality. She says, God has called us to love our neighbors, to care about our neighbors, not to compete with our neighbors, 
not to compare ourselves with our neighbors, not to condemn our neighbors, not to kiss up to our neighbors, not to control our neighbors, simply to care about our neighbors, to love God by loving the people that live really close to where we live. Here are her words, a little bit of a long quote, but I love what she has said, it's dynamite. Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. When our Christian homes are open, we make transparent to a watching world what Christ is doing with our bodies, our families, and our world. Invest in your neighbors for the long haul, the hundreds of conversations that make up a neighborhood, and stop thinking of conversations with neighbors as sneaky evangelistic raids into their sinful lives. Maybe our lives are actually more sinful. Stop treating your neighbor as a caricature of an alien worldview. Wow. You know what else? In this book, she says she's an INTJ too. She took my excuse totally away. Powerful, insightful, compassionate. See your neighbor, share a meal with your neighbor. Now, you can find some, a great way to take some baby steps in this out there in the foyer. As you leave, you're going to see a board out there. It talks about taking the, taking the neighbor up challenge and you can take a little card like this, and it will just give you some practical ideas of how you can, in a non-threatening way, start to share a meal with your neighbor. Some of our members have been doing this far better than Jeff and I have been, so I asked some of them to tell me their stories. And I heard stories like this, an open house at Christmas time with words spread through the HOA website, an impromptu back, backyard barbecue advertised through Facebook, a Come and donate a can of canned goods to a local food co-op. And if you drop that by my house, I want to share a meal with you this evening at such and such a time. A guy who invited over his neighbors and the people in his discipleship group and let everybody get to know one another. Someone who cares for their elderly widowed neighbor, helps her with yard work and other things like that. And then he and his wife invited her over for dinner. It's not that hard. You eat the food, you drink the drinks. You get to know your neighbor. That's what God calls us to do. That's what God calls us to do. We've only got two points on the points to remember. We'll get to hit the last one here in the conclusion of this sermon. The first point to remember was about what we call a gospel imperative. It's what God commands us to do. He says, Build kingdom relationships over meals. The second point to remember is what we call a gospel indicative, a statement of what Jesus has done, is doing, or will do on our behalf. And here it is. At the confirmation of God's kingdom is a meal, a banquet that celebrates God's grace. And this banquet has been purchased at a great price. Again, I don't want to scoot past that too fast. Let us sink in. At the culmination of God's kingdom is a meal, a banquet that celebrates God's grace. And this banquet has been purchased at a great price. We've been talking about the here and now. We want to end this sermon by looking ahead and looking back. And we're going to find Jesus in both directions. I want to end the sermon by simply reading three passages of Scripture that are fairly long. But I'm not going to say much of anything about these passages. Let me ask you, please, to focus your heart and your mind as I read God's Word. Look at the words intently as you see them on the screen and let the word of God sink into your heart. 
First of all, we look ahead to the great meal, the great banquet that will happen at the end of time. Here's what it says in Revelation 19. The apostle John says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, his people, has made herself ready. Fine linen and bright bright and clean was given her to wear by grace given, not earned. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to what? To the wedding supper, the wedding feast of the Lamb. At the end of time, a feast that will last forever. This was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 25. And after communion today, we're going to sing a song that is based upon Isaiah 25. It is called, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. Though this is given to us in the Old Testament, it is about what will happen at the end of time. Isaiah writes, On this mountain, that is Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. Let me say parenthetically here. You know, as we talked about how the gospel breaks down racial and ethnic and cultural barriers, this is another one of those examples of where you find it all the way through the Bible. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tear from, tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace, the disgrace of his people who have come from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord, Yahweh. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The party that will be better than all the parties of this earth put together will happen at that time, and it will last forever. And also through the prophet Isaiah, we are invited to partake in this feast. Isaiah 55, come, all you who are thirsty of heart, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. How can you buy it if you don't have money? It's by grace. Somebody else buys it for you. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? In other words, why do you give yourselves to the false saviors of this world? They don't satisfy you, do they? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest affair. Seek the Lord. He will satisfy your heart. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts Let him turn to the Lord. This is a call to joyful repentance, just like Jesus said. Let him turn to the Lord, and the Lord will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Our ways are the ways of of works righteousness. We thought we would have to earn this. The way of God is the way of grace alone and faith alone and the cross alone. We look ahead to the greatest feast that the universe will ever experience or see. And we also look back to the night on which Jesus was betrayed. We look back to the cross. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, 
he celebrated a feast. He celebrated a feast. It was the feast of Passover. It was the feast on time that Jesus and others had a whole meal, a big celebration. Thinking back to that celebration of that time in which the angel of death passed over every household on which the doorpost would be found the blood of a lamb. A substitute that would die in the place of the oldest of that family. And they celebrated the mercy of God and they celebrated it with a feast. And on that night, Jesus must have shocked his followers when he said, this bread being broken, this is not just about a lamb. This is my body being broken for you. I'm the lamb of God. This cup of wine, this is not really about the blood of a lamb spilled long ago. This is about my blood that's about to be spilled. I am the lamb of God. And here's what puts it all together. I hope you don't miss it. Who could have imagined that the host of the feast would be the substance of the feast? Who could have ever imagined that the host of the feast will be the substance of the feast, that he invites us and he lets himself be consumed in the process? Jesus so wanted to feast with you and me for eternity that he said to the Father, here is my body, break it for these people that we love. Here is my blood, let it be poured out for these people that we love. I want to feast so much with them. I will let them feast on me. I will give myself in their place. My goodness, what love, what grace, what mercy. And therefore, what will be true for us? We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing in our, in our, with hearts that are restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and we will weep no more. That is where we are going. Now, I'll end with this. This is the invitation of Jesus to everyone who has trusted Jesus for years and to anyone who would trust Jesus for the first time this morning. Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door through repentance and faith, I will come in and what? I will feast with him and he will feast with me forever. Amen and amen. May we feast with Jesus and may through the little bitty feast in our homes, may we give people a little bit of a taste of what the love of Jesus is all about. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you you loved us this much that you would pour out your blood for us, that you would let your body be broken for us. And, Lord, even now as we come to this communion, we come taking a little bit of juice and a little bit of of a wafer. But, Lord, this reminds us of the feast that is going to come someday. It is a preview of that great celebration And that great celebration will happen because you gave yourself up as the Lamb of God for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for this way of tangibly being reminded of what you did for us. Thank you that even in this meal, this little meal right here, we are called to feast on Jesus and we are called to share our food with our neighbors that they also might get a taste of how wonderful Jesus is. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. 
please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.